people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Hello, and welcome to ACOM. Today, we are so excited to welcome to the show our good friend, Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett. Yay. Hello. Yay. <laughs> Thank Hello. you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy listening to your podcast, and so it's such a treat to be able to speak with you today. Thanks again for having me on. Yes, thank you. I'm very glad that we finally coordinated our schedules, not to mention our time zones. That was a bit yeah. of a challenge. <laughs> I know. I know. Believe me, they're close friends and family members who still have issues with the time difference Aww. since I've lived here. So Aww, yeah. it's something I'm really used to navigating. That's for sure. I'm glad we did it. We figured it out. Props to us. Yes. <laughs> and congratulations, Dr. Christine, on writing the best Beatles book of 2021. I've wow. seen it yes. at the top of pretty much every list. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on that. Wow. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you to say. I was hopeful there would be a positive response to it, but you just <laughs> never know, do you? So it's um, lovely to hear you say that and to acknowledge the positive feedback that's been out there. And I'm so glad that it's gotten that. And what I really appreciate about your work is how incredibly well-researched it always is. And it feels like you really enjoyed yourself, really enjoyed the writing, <laughs> yeah, the research. I, I mean, I know writing is never like 100% enjoyment, but, um, but you obviously love the subject. It was a labor of love. And yes. that really comes across. Oh, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, any big project anyone takes on, I think there are peaks and valleys, aren't mm. there? There are times that <laughs> everything just flows and it seems so easy. And especially if it is something that you're so invested in. And the Beatles as a topic is something that's been with me since I was a little girl. So long before any sort of academic or writerly aspirations to do something like this. So it was enjoyable for the most part, but believe me, there were times that were very challenging and <laughs> stressful and feeling quite vulnerable also in a way, putting myself mm. out there and really, uh, in a way, inserting myself into the spirit yeah. of the research, that's always a little bit scary. I think 
most people won't admit that, but I'm very happy too, because I think it sheds light on the process of writing any book, let alone something academic, where you're really trying to go in depth with a topic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it had its challenges, but to me, it was the project of a lifetime. I just oh. was so grateful to have the space and time to do it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. And like I said, I, I really do think it's made an impact. I've, I mean, I've seen the reception that it's gotten. It seems overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I would be curious to know if you have been met with any resistance or pushback either from the Beatles fandom or also like I, I know that academia can be brutal yeah was it hard getting this work published well when I sent the proposal for the book out I sent it to eight different publishing houses all of which were academic in some dimension, you know, Bloomsbury, of course, we know has a non-academic branch of their publishing industry. Um, although my book was definitely published through Bloomsbury Academic, but I did send it out to university presses, which mm -hmm. a lot of academics do. And out of the eight publishers, I got three positive responses two mm. publishers wanted to publish it right away pretty much wow. and another one liked the idea but wasn't a hundred percent sure and so sent it on I mean it's always with academic presses they are always sent on whether it's a proposal or a full manuscript they're sent on to peer reviewers so mm. um, you'll get feedback right away in terms of whether these other academics see it as a project that should be greenlit or not. And mm -hmm. then the acquisitions editor will basically go with that feedback. So the feedback overall from those initial reviewers of the potential project were really positive, really good. I think there was one review that came in late that was really critical and was worried that I was going to sort of uh, essentialize women's experiences too much, you know, the sort of gendered essentialism, mm. you know, that mm -hmm. all women in the Beatles community are like this or like that. And that was never <laughs> something no. I was going to do. No. Um, but that was Definitely sort not. of the one really critical um, voice that came through. But the other reviewers seem to really understand what I wanted to do. So from the get-go, I wasn't receiving a lot of pushback. It was mostly, yeah, that's a good idea. Why has no one written about this yet? <laughs> so that was more so the response. Since the book has been published, I have to say the only sort of overly critical or maybe negative comments that I've heard have not been to my face. They've been <laughs> sort of through oh. the grapevine a little bit. You know, I do think, and I'm sure you agree with this, that by and large, I think the men in the Beatles community especially are very, I think, progressive and open-minded and supportive of women in the community. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, of course, because the Beatles have always attracted such a huge spectrum of fans yeah. from all backgrounds and all sort of political views, what have you, there's always going to be a contingent of Beatles fans who, when they, for instance, see a book title like mine, they might jump to certain conclusions like, oh, what's mm -hmm. this? You know, <laughs> women's Beatles history. What? Why is that needed? Yeah. How pretentious right. or, you know, is she speaking for all women? How dare she, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. or. Do actually... women have a different history than males do? What? <laughs> right. yeah. right. Is it there so... just one history? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, who does she think she is? Why is she qualified to do this? And when I tweeted about the paperback edition of the book that came out in late February this year, Somebody retweeted it, and I would guess, I mean, it wasn't clear from the name because it wasn't an actual person's name, but I had to think this was a guy who was <laughs> retweeting it. Um, basically, they retweeted it with a quote saying, is it filled with nothing but hysterical screaming? And I thought, <laughs> ah, yes, wow. here we go. You know, you somebody, go. somebody is going to say this, right? So unfortunately... We know that we do not live in a perfect society by any means, and there are still <laughs> people out there, especially on social media, um, but obviously folks who would not probably be willing to make negative remarks to my face or give me that sort of critique up front, who, for whatever reason, think that my book is totally unnecessary and ridiculous, unfortunately, there are just those voices that are out there, and I mainly ignore them, I would say. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Probably best. <laughs> so your book covers quite a lot from the early fan base to the women in the Beatles' lives to artists and professionals that they touched. My overall feeling of the book was that it ultimately was a case for why women are important to the Beatles story. Yeah. Why do you think that this was something that needed to be written into a book? Well, because it's such a dynamic and interesting aspect of Beatles history. And certainly there have been memoirs written by women who intimately knew the Beatles, first-generation fans more recently who are reflecting on their experiences. Um, I think the first book that I encountered written by a woman giving her side of the Beatles story was Cynthia Lennon's A Twist of Lennon, which came mm -hmm. out in the late 70s. And I was very young, so I didn't read it very carefully. I sort of skimmed through it, looked at the drawings of hers that are in the book and so on. But there's been a feeling that I've had for a long time that I would like to see a cultural history about the Beatles that focuses on these various experiences that women have had with them, whether from a distance or close up. So even though 
women are mentioned, of course, in these various Beatles biographies that have come out over the years. And as I said, there are the various memoirs and so on. There just wasn't one specific cultural history that really highlighted these experiences and also dug really deep to, to talk about and think about why the Beatles as a band, as people, as a phenomenon, have been so important to women. So there are two sides, right? There's the side of the women who were there and mm -hmm. some of these figures that were highly influential to the Beatles themselves as people and as musicians, mm -hmm. like Ostrid Kircher, for instance. Um, but then on the flip side, there's this now multi-generational story in history as well of how the Beatles have prompted women to think differently about the world, think differently about themselves, have been this real cultural force for good, obviously, in the lives of women. So the more I thought about the project and how I wanted the book to look, I realized that this women's history, yes, was about the women in the actual history and story of the Beatles, but there's also this extended history of the Beatles, the legacy of the Beatles phenomenon that clearly has touched so many lives. And what does that mean for women who have really incorporated the Beatles into their lives in mm -hmm. whatever way that is? You know, you guys yeah. have a podcast about the Beatles. I've written a book about the Beatles. Um, that whole last chapter in my book, I try to really map out all these different ways that women have engaged intellectually. Yeah. Yeah. And this really deep level, various levels, that engagement with the Beatles and that history I felt needed telling. And I wanted to, of course, contextualize it in the historical moment from the 60s as a decade really moving towards change, especially for women. So that, I guess, is the third layer to what's going on, is that when the Beatles emerged, there was clearly a lot of change happening already. They were part of the change. And how do we map that on specifically changes for women going forward from the 1960s? I guess the other thing I wanted to mention in response to this initial question of why I wanted to do it, why I thought it was important to feature women's experiences and perspectives, mm -hmm. besides the fact that one whole book didn't do that sort of thing yet, is that I think baked into the whole way that the Beatles have been historicized and women within the Beatles story, it's this idea that women have nothing intelligent to say about the Beatles. The Beatle yes. maniacs were just the screaming horde, which goes back to that tweet I mentioned before. As somebody who grew up as a Beatles fan, as a rock fan, as someone who eventually played in bands myself, someone who had always been super interested in music and super interested in Beatles history, you know, I'm somebody who would ask the question, well, okay, the girls were screaming and that's fine, but that's not all they were doing. Let's maybe think about what those girls were doing when they were not screaming at the concerts. Right, right. Yeah. I think the first time I encountered anything written about that, 
was when I was already a PhD student. So this would have been maybe like 2003, 2004. And I came across this book chapter by Barbara Ehrenreich, Elizabeth Hess, and Gloria Jacobs that was basically a feminist reading of Beatlemania saying, you know, look, the girls gave themselves permission to be out there in the streets acting however they wanted. They didn't really give a damn about how it looked for them to be screaming and giving themselves over to the moment. We can look at this and see it as feminists, knowing what happened by the end of the 60s and early 70s, and knowing that second wave feminism really came into its own by that time in places like the United States, we can see it as a precursor to those things happening for women later on. And that just blew my mind when yeah. I read that because I thought, finally, I'm reading something about women's experiences of the Beatles in that Beatlemania moment that are really saying that this was an important thing and it wasn't just silly and it's not something to be dismissed and it wasn't just screaming yeah. for the sake of screaming there's something more to what's going on and let's take a look at that you know don't you want to be part of that don't you want to be part of something that is the biggest cultural phenomenon at that moment mm -hmm. and it's a point of connection with other girls, young women who are interested in the Beatles. And it's a way to find community and um, new forms of leisure. So, I mean, I just think about how exciting it felt as a 12, 13 year old in the 80s to discover music. Yes. And, and just the way that the music made me feel and kind of what it prompted me to think about in terms of the wider world that was out there. It, you know, I wasn't I wasn't part of Beatlemania in the 60s. So I can only imagine sort of the the extra level of excitement that I didn't get to experience in that right. way. Because we weren't going to Beatle concerts. Right. Growing up as a teen, I'm sure just like you, Christine, I had the experience of discovering music and sharing that with my friends. And, you know, every girlfriend, every friend that I ever had, all my friends were music fanatics, right? So we would mm -hmm. all exchange, you know, tapes and records and CDs and, and whatever. It's just part of the experience of growing up and being a music fan that has nothing right. to do with, with sexuality. Right. So just to circle back to something that you said before. So, mm -hmm. Are you saying that the sexual experience or the sexual awakening or whatever of young women in the Beatlemania era, that is a topic that sort of traditionally when women are discussed in Beatles scholarship, that is where it has been focused in the past? I wouldn't say focus so much, but I think you know, that very loaded term of hysteria, which I can't stand. Right. 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 Yes. <laughs> Young yeah, female. From, it's from very beginning problematic. to end. From yes. beginning to end, the word hysteria is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's just not good. It's not it's good. It's just not and good. <laughs> it's not good. And it's still used a lot by some writers to describe mm. Beatlemania or female Beatles fandom. And I think. The interesting thing for me when I was really delving into the history and thinking about the Beatles 
historical positioning as sort of the first rock band, like the rock band, the template for all other rock bands that followed. The thing that's so cool about the Beatles that's so different and sort of the history of thinking about also young guys and young girls involved in music scenes and being really into rock music and all that stuff is that I feel the Beatles created this really unique space where um, girls and boys, young men, young women could share in the experience equally. And it didn't mm -hmm. have this sort of overt masculinization to it. Um, I think if mm -hmm. you look at the rock bands that come later in the 70s with arena sure. rock and things yeah. like that, I mean, there is that term cock rock that came yeah. out of of what happened to rock music but the Beatles were not like that <laughs> they, yeah, I agree they, and um so even in comparison uh, to like the Rolling Stones right which I talk, talk about in the book too that even if you look at the contemporaries of the Beatles or the bands that came in their wake you know and who became hugely popular say in the 70s after they had broken up it seems to become this very sort of macho rock space mm -hmm. and that is not true of the Beatles time it's not true girls and young women were very involved mm -hmm. with Beatles culture from the very beginning and so what I wanted to say is all this talk about like sexualization or like the sexuality component of rock music you know sex drugs rock and roll all that stuff mm. and talking about for instance women fans as groupies Mm. That all becomes a construct and a framework that's used. And I think that intimidates or at least turns off some women from being rock fans. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. That is something that really comes later, you know, post Beatles, I would say. That doesn't come out so much when you read a lot of the things um, written, say, by young women who are fans of the Beatles right. in the 60s some of it does but you know that that didn't seem to be a big topic coming up for over. me yeah no it didn't like looking at the letters to say the Beatles book monthly magazine there's some sort of you know playfulness sort of flirtatiousness that comes out and I'm not trying to sort of make this whole discussion sexless either, but I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that, you know, that what that wasn't sort of central to what was going on with the yeah. whole fan community. And I remember when I was first working on this project, when I was explaining what I was doing, what I was working on, somebody asked me like, oh, are you going to talk about the groupies and things like that and I thought why are you going straight to that yeah mm -hmm. yes yeah once you start a conversation about sexuality if men are in control of that conversation that's where mm -hmm. it's gonna go it's it, it goes right. down the tubes very quickly and it yeah it makes so women the objects in the discussion right not the not the subjects of the discussion so it's a, like the three of us talking about if we're talking about women's sexuality in the Beatles, we're objectifying <laughs> the Beatles in that in that right. sort of scenario, right? So, right. Whereas a man, right. you know, a man, typical man, <laughs> would would <laughs> definitely flip that onto the women being sexual objects in the situation, right? So, yeah, right. Sort of yeah. like, oh, isn't it how great that the Beatles had the opportunity to get with all these women? It's like, 
who cares? I really yeah, do. Right, like, exactly. I don't right. care. Yeah, that's right. like the least interesting. Yes, question. right. Let's move on. Like, what? How much? Is I there know, and I, yeah, and it's just what kinds of questions are interesting for me as a scholar of the Beatles to ask. I happen yes. to be a woman. I happen to be a woman who grew up a Beatles fan and encountered certain narratives around women within the Beatles story, some of which were fine. And I thought, mm, interesting. I want to know more about that. And some narratives that were very a negative. Yeah. And a problem, <laughs> like the whole hysterical Beatlemaniac narrative, obviously. I thought, mm, you know, there's more going on than just the screaming. Maybe we should talk with these women you know, who are now yes. uh, in their 70s, let's say. And also, why are some women in the Beatles story highly regarded and respected? And why are others not mm. and, yes. and treated so poorly? And yes. obviously, I think you know some of the women I'm talking <laughs> yes. about here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, so Yoko broke up the Beatles. Right. Yes. Sure. Right. Linda or e or is... even Linda. Yeah. Like Linda yeah. is not. Linda is not pretty. Like Jane Asher. Like okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wow. Is this where we're going with right. this yeah. analysis of who we think these members of the Beatles should be with? And that's why I guess when I was thinking about responding to those sorts of questions with. The chapter that I did write focusing on the women who were girlfriends or wives of mm. the members of the band, I remember thinking, wow, you know, this application of these theories around feminism and fairy tales really works for me. That seemed to be a framework that made a lot of sense. And I also thought this is a framework that a male writer about the Beatles would never touch and it wouldn't even be on their radar I think. right right i think when you're doing research and you're you're thinking about these things quite deeply it's funny the things that end up popping up that you didn't expect and that was quite an unexpected discovery but one that i thought worked really well for exploring those kinds of relationships and also especially the public reception and response to those relationships Even now, it very much still feels like women in mainstream Beatles study is a relatively new phenomenon and that women and people of color are still incredibly underrepresented in mainstream Beatles media, even relative mm -hmm. to other academic and professional fields. In your opinion, why do you think that is? Mm. Well, yes, I, I do think that's true on one hand and on the other i think sadly it's not wholly different from other areas of academic and and professional mm. life um and there are a couple of ways that i think about this we really have to think about also the historical context first of all women in academic life or women in professions it really mm -hmm. only has been a few generations ago that women had more access and were starting to position themselves in a whole host of different professional fields. Mm -hmm. I mean, wrap your mind around the fact 
that the percentage of women who are even going for undergraduate degrees that ostensibly would give them a leg up to get into different kinds of professions. The numbers of women going to university were very, very low until basically the mid to late 60s. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the fact that the highest echelons of academic life, let's say in the UK and in the US, universities like Yale and Princeton mm -hmm. did not go fully co-ed until 1969. Okay. Yep. So the fact that there wasn't as much access even to getting these qualifications that would lead women into these different professional fields, that wasn't changing until relatively recently. So that idea of putting yourself in a position like I am in now, where I have a job that allows me to do this kind of research, right, and to write these sorts of books, that's something in the historical scope is still kind of new, right? I'm mm -hmm. a Gen Xer. I'm now supervising PhD students who are Gen Zers, right? Yeah. They're mm -hmm. only a few generations in where women are really allowing themselves to have that agency to do advanced degrees or to even position themselves in this organic intellectual uh, space that could be about anything but of course we're talking about the Beatles um, and study of the Beatles and so this leads me to the other point in terms of historical context is that Beatles scholarship Beatles literature what we have there was a really slow start to that because even if you were a young man who wanted to write about the Beatles say for a master's a thesis or a PhD in the 70s and the 80s, if you propose to do a big project like that, that hopefully would turn into a book, right? Mm -hmm. There's a good chance that your supervisor, your advisor for your PhD or your MA would say no way. Because in the world of scholarship, if we're talking about academia, for a long time, there was a big snobbery around doing studies about anything from popular culture. Sure, so, right. Yeah, so if you conflate that with the fact that women were just starting to gain access to the top universities and giving themselves, quote unquote, permission to go on and become professional women, right? Having a full-time job, a career, if that is still a relatively new thing, and the guys who are wanting to study the Beatles seriously, they don't even have the opportunity to do that. What do you think is going to happen with women who are wanting to do that? So if women are wanting, quote unquote, to be taken seriously as intellectuals, as academics, the earliest women who are going through that process are going to stick with relatively traditional topics sure that have respect for them sort of already baked in yes you know brain surgery is yeah. is <laughs> is intrinsically and objectively valued so so Wait. if a woman becomes a brain surgeon then that is transitive it goes directly to her whereas if 
Whereas if it's something, you know, supposedly quote unquote more frivolous, she's fighting on a battle on two sides. But I mean, we're getting to the point now where women are outpacing men in terms of undergraduates, you know, under- yes, undergraduates. That's right. And right? even like even in uh, in medicine, for example, like, you know, a solid 40, 45 percent of physicians are female now. Right. Right. Um, obviously, this is, you know, this is new. It's only in the past few decades. But what I'm saying is like 50 percent of the voices out in mainstream Beatles scholarship and discourse are not female. It right. seems like there has been a, a real explosion like the last couple of years. Yeah, um, absolutely. I would say within the last 10 years, there's been a buildup both in the academic and sort of more mediated, not necessarily academic space, right? Um, what I was going to say is that really in terms of Beatles literature, the buildup of what's being produced by anyone it's not really coming out as much until the 1990s. So the feminist reading of Beatlemania, that chapter was written in 1992. You see um, people like Sheila Whiteley, who's a musicologist um, in the UK. Uh, She's starting to write things about the Beatles. I mean, she's writing about popular music in all sorts of ways, but she did write some very interesting things about the Beatles, also starting in the 90s. But that's also when you start seeing a lot more non-academic books coming out about the Beatles, Mm -hmm. um, written by mostly men. But it's also, and I chronicle this in my book, it's also when sort of my generation of women are starting to say like, look, I'm going to write my master's thesis or my PhD on the Beatles, and that's just the way it's going to be. (laughs) So (laughs) you're you're seeing that happen with men and women, but it's been a gradual process, quite a slow process as well. Um, And as you know, I'm sure you've observed the amount of Beatles books that have been coming out it's just escalated year after year after year. And I think really it's been the last 10 to 20 years. You're seeing a lot more in general and also now more uh, women are coming to the forefront too at this point, which is great. Definitely, there's many more women and many more young people, I feel like um, Mm -hmm. now. Part of that is due I think probably to the changing media landscape, right? So, you know, now we have podcasts and YouTube and social media and TikToks and, you know, all different kinds of ways to produce media. Yes, Um, yes. Actually, I wanted to mention there's a really interesting uh, scholarly article that tracks this evolution of what kind of books have come out about the Beatles. And it's hmm. by an academic named Marcus Collins, and it's in Popular Music History is the journal, and it's called We Can Work It Out, Popular and Academic Writing on the Beatles. Hmm. So that was really where I saw laid out this trajectory of the content that's been out there and how actually actually the a- academic books are the more recent edition. Uh, because, as I said before, writing about pop culture in any way in academia was kind of frowned upon 
until more recently. So that's why you do have more of the, say, British and American mm, yeah. journalists, you know, like um, Hunter Davies. Davies. Yeah, Philip Norman, are... Ray Connolly. Yeah, all those people traditionally were were journalists who, who ended up writing books. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. So... The so you think that the I, trend you think oh, the trend I'm sorry you, you think the trend is moving away from that and moving into more academic books about the Beatles? Well, I don't know if it's I don't think it will ever fully move away and just be strictly academic. No way. I think yeah. people will always want to write books about the Beatles and so if anything it's just this new layer this new edition of Beatles literature that's out there that yeah. we have the academic stuff as well as the popular writing and the popular right, right. books that are coming out yeah it's hilarious because men in my experience they seem to have the impression that the Beatles is a male-dominated fandom which I've never, ever seen it that way. I mean, again, I guess because I'm a woman and, you know, grew up female, but all of the Beatle obsessives that I knew were women. I mean, I did mm -hmm. I did have male friends who were also obsessed with the Beatles, but mostly it was women. I'm talking about in my actual real life, but definitely <laughs> online also. Right. Like, you know, back in my day before there was the internet, there were like pen pals and magazines and stuff like that. All of those were dominated by other girls. So right. it's, it's strange for me to even think of Beatles fandom as a male driven thing. I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's, it's wrapped up in this socialization, unfortunately, and this historic and traditional way of thinking, who are the experts in Eight. society? And who should be um, paid for that expertise? Right. Well, that's and a big part of it. So I did go down that research rabbit hole of looking at all these articles, both academic articles and also just online news stories about women experts and this whole idea of expertise as still being seen as very gendered you know that mm -hmm. yeah people are going to quote unquote trust men to be more expert in things than women and it could be on anything not just issues around leadership per se so of course the Beatles as a topic of great cultural interest and <laughs> yeah. because we all think of them even people who are not great Beatles fans they're thought of as the most iconic rock band ever and so again women are going to be automatically seen still in 2022 which is ridiculous as less expert and there are all sorts of books and articles written about this. And Phoebe, I think I sent you one of them yesterday. Yes. <laughs> There's a book that came out recently called The Authority Gap and mm -hmm. talks about these issues of, you know, why are women, quote unquote, taken less seriously than men? And it's all this weird stuff about tone of voice, pitch of voice appearance mm. you know all the things that I have nightmares of in terms <laughs> yeah of right 
of what like potentially what are my students thinking of me when I walk in and I'm this petite kind of girlish looking middle-aged woman um (laughs) who has uh you know my voice has gotten deeper over the years but I remember even being told when I was a PhD student uh somebody told me you know uh you might get some negative reviews you know in terms of feedback from your students because you're a petite woman with a high voice and I was like <gasps> good times great that's yeah so morning. that well, sounds Allison, lovely can't wait for the first one of those can't wait. can't wait for those reviews to roll in <laughs> yeah I mean fortunately I have to say it's never really been like that but the fact which is great but the fact that that was even said to me that that was Mm -hmm. some sort of perception of what I may have to encounter and deal with I thought that really sucks I don't like that at all yeah (laughs) Alison Bumstead when she was on our show she mentioned you know a review that was exactly like that so my feedback of your course was I don't like your voice yeah right (laughs) okay right right well and i've gotten we've gotten reviews about that as well well that's Mm -hmm. for sure yeah yeah criticizing our voices so it's really strange i mean i thought there i think i saw a tweet that went out that was and i don't know if you saw this and it was by a fairly high profile person and i think it was a woman in fact who made some comment about like ladies if you're out there i think it was even about podcasting yes you know you know, please don't have such an annoying voice or something like that. And I just, <laughs> yes, you know, I I, I'm obviously <laughs> paraphrasing. I'm not looking <laughs> yeah. at it right now, but I just couldn't believe that. This is why, you know, looking at the span of history of say 50, 60 years, as much as there's been so much progress in terms of women's involvement in all spheres of public life there's still mm-hmm. some weird stuff that goes on around oh, definitely. gender and around women having any sort of voice well and I say mainstream Beatles media uh, because I'm talking about you know mostly people who are getting paid because there's a lot of unpaid labor being performed by women have been since yes. the beginning and still are and I mean, I, I'm guilty of it because I run a podcast that I put an enormous amount of time and energy into, and I don't make any money on it. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm I, I'm guilty of it as as well. But like, for instance, Sarah Schmidt, who runs the Meet the Beatles for Real site. Yes, I yes, mean, that site is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, what an archive. Yeah, fantastic. We're talking, yeah, about somebody who has done an enormous amount of really substantial work on Beatles history and, and has gotten, you know, tons of first person accounts from uh, people of all walks of life that are really, really illuminating. Well, yeah, and because those encounters are so diverse, and again, it goes beyond the screaming, right? It it actually talks about all these lovely interactions that women had with and members of the not. Beatles, and sometimes, and sometimes not. Right. Yeah, 
but uh, but that's, that's true yeah. yeah and that's why I feel, I feel like it's so important because these aren't answers they're giving to an interviewer this is you know this isn't the Beatles telling a newspaper what they want people to know this these are like actual true. encounters so yeah, true, I found true, them very absolutely. candid yeah and very revealing yeah. Mm -hmm. well and definitely and definitely sometimes it's the uh <laughs> if there's unpleasantness in the story sometimes it's from the fan mm -hmm. you feel like you're reading an am i the asshole entry oh, when they sure. talk about an encounter with a beetle it's like yeah you are it's you <laughs> you fan but but That's... even in those you can learn a lot about the beetle in well, question yeah based on of how they, they respond to it and also like though they can literally be helpful in compiling history of like from day-to-day -day histories about what was happening on this mm. day and this day like there have mm -hmm. been instances where we've referred to those posts because mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. were trying to reconstruct you know what happened in 1969 or whatever and a yeah. lot of that's just lost to history because that's we don't right. have a you know a day-to-day -day account of everything that the Beatles did but some right. some of those can really shed light on what was going on, where they were and how they were at various <laughs> times. And all of that is done out of love for free. I mean, that's amazing. Right, right. And that's why it was important for me to, to document that kind of effective, they call it, you know, in academia or sociology, they call it effective labor. You know, it's something that's done out of, um, love and commitment to the community, um, something that is really central to people's identities who yeah. are doing this work. And of course, traditionally, I mean, there's a lot of women's studies, uh, writing and literature that talks about obviously unpaid labor as something that women traditionally have taken up a lot more than men, yeah. mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Um, but in any fan community, there's a lot of that going on. And we just have to be grateful and respectful to, especially in the context of the book, the women who are doing these things. So I, I wanted to make sure that that was integral to the history as well. And that's, like you said earlier, Phoebe, the, especially the very young Beatles fans that are coming into the community now who yeah. are using Twitter and who are using these different and TikTok and social media platforms. That's just a whole other level of access and reach, you know, um, connecting with people around the world. And as somebody who's used to the very slow pace of academic publication, I have to say it's so exciting to think about these spaces where there's much more of an immediate connection and you can really get your ideas out there in a way that does have that immediacy and this really kind of uh, very impactful effect, you know, that these mm -hmm. young people are really yes. getting that kind of reach and that sense of community and it is so immediate and they're getting their ideas out there that's really absolutely important. that's all that's also very very important and very true and their takes are a lot different from ours i mean the the mm -hmm. you can see right away the way that a 20 year old person interprets things is it just is different even even from totally 
you know somebody our age um yeah tumblr is a great space for there there's a there's a handful of users amaralto or amoral too i'm sure you've heard of um mm -hmm. and there's there's mm -hmm. a couple more there's somebody called reflectismo um i don't know the gender of these people <laughs> sure but, sure um they do a great job of posting original source material that otherwise would just be lost in the ether yeah also there's people on twitter you know john lyons jesse tedeschi it's just a good community of people is especially now who are doing a really good job of posting original interviews and sources i mean all the way back to the 60s that's really important because I think a lot of people did not have access to those things unless you went and pulled stuff on microfiche or whatever. Right, <laughs> right. It's it's a lot easier now. Definitely it's been the case here in Australia too, you know, that state libraries and the national library has access to a lot of different newspapers and magazines that you can just easily find these articles like there was yeah. one that I was really excited to find when I was doing research about Jane Asher's interview with um, a British journalist, I think right after the breakup with Paul. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that we really don't know too much and quite <laughs> rightly, Jane Asher has decided she doesn't want to talk about that part of her life. Fair mm -hmm. play to her. That's absolutely <laughs> Fine, I respect that. So it's interesting when you do find primary sources like that, it is a lot easier to find now through the internet, through these online catalogs. You can actually find the articles from the time, print them out, you know, use them for your research. It's great that there's more access and more awareness that that information is out there. I am all for it. I I feel like it's really empowering and i i feel like it's only good because i definitely do feel like there was a lot of gatekeeping going on yes you know prior mm -hmm. to like the open source of the of the internet where you could post anything but for example again i'm just telling you what i'm observing on tumblr which is a much younger pool of users or yeah. whatever um they all read books. They all read all the Beatles books or whatever. And then they all throw them aside, you know, and then they all pull original source material and then they examine the original source material, which is mm -hmm. absolutely outstanding. I mean, that's exactly what you want students yeah. to do. You know, yes. you, you want them to be able to like look critically at what the actual source is rather than somebody's version. Like we don't need everybody's old-fashioned narratives telling us what to think about stuff and and this newer generation of people definitely do not need it and do not want it you know they're happy to read it yeah. and get your opinion <clears throat> but then yeah. you know they want to see the original the original thing which I, I just think is amazing it's exciting to me but I wonder if but I wonder if that is threatening to certain people yeah, if there's a backlash brewing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Beatles story in real time, the 1960s in general, is receding further and further back 
in history and time, right? And there was a sense, at least in academia, but I think this is has been true across the board, that the further removed you are from something or a point in time, the more potentially you have a critical distance, right, to looking at that. And that's why in terms of say in the 1980s if people wanted to study the Beatles seriously that was only say 20 years removed from <laughs> yeah, that time right. <laughs> and so that was part of why say traditional history departments may have been adverse to sanctioning those sorts of or you know mm, allowing yeah, those sorts sure. of studies to proceed because it's not history yet (laughs) it's well you know it's interesting because for instance when I was at the University of Hamburg for my Fulbright year I was part or I was a visiting scholar who was part of the contemporary history research center so there's definitely that idea of quote-unquote contemporary history which is the kind of history that's still in living memory you know you can interview people who remember certain events that's great um and the Beatles obviously as a phenomenon that's something still within living memory right now but will people be studying and writing about the Beatles in whatever way formally informally will that be ongoing you know 50 years from now 100 years from now sure you know of course I think just like people study Shakespeare and right Dickens and you know of course so (laughs) all signs point to yes yes (laughs) magic eight ball says um all signs point to yes so that's why when I do hear people say and I've heard people say this and Phoebe you've brought this up too and Daphne Mm -hmm. this idea like the younger generation doesn't have the right or something to study the Beatles, write about the Beatles. It, it doesn't make sense to me because it (laughs) totally ignores historical study. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't have to have been at the court of Marie Antoinette to want to write about her research. Right. 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 It's ludicrous. Right. So It's certainly fantastic when we can interview people who were there at the time when the, when the Beatles were a band. And of course, you know, we want to hear those firsthand accounts and there are a lot of accounts that are out there and we can look at newspaper interviews. There are all sorts of primary sources that we can look at. And I was very fortunate for my book to be able to interview people who were there at the cavern um, at Beatles concerts in the US during Beatlemania. But it doesn't mean that when people don't have access to interviewing people like that anymore, that we can't write wonderful histories about the Beatles or engage with the Beatles as a topic. I think that's just going to go on and on and on. Right. In the future, you know, future generations will have the benefit of whatever they're going to know about humanity that we don't, just like us looking back on, you know, um, a modern understanding of mental illness enriches biographies of, you know, Abraham Lincoln, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, right. and we can we look back on what we knew about mental illness ten years ago and think we were barbarians, right? Which right. we were, right? Because yeah. that's the nature of change, and that's why when you think about the diversity of perspectives about the Beatles, I think the community or Beatles culture and Beatles history only benefits from diverse ways of thinking about the band's story. And of course, as a nerdy academic, I'm of course going to <laughs> um, think that if I have students coming into my class, it doesn't matter what I'm teaching, I want them to leave that course with a more well-rounded understanding of that subject matter. I want them to come at it from a lot of different theoretical perspectives and right. have historical context for what we're talking about. So, you know, unfortunately, again, there's a contingent of people out there in the world who, for whatever reason, they don't like that. They think that um, diversifying the approach to a topic like the Beatles somehow dilutes it or mm -hmm. it somehow is just beyond their framework of thinking about that topic and they don't like it. They just want to keep with what they know. And it is what it is. You know, some people are just more adventurous intellectually. Some people are yeah. keen to explore and learn and grow. And some people just don't want that. So right. what can you and do? If, yeah. What can you do? For Paul McCartney's 80th birthday, mm -hmm. there were mm -hmm. lots of collections of people speaking about songs that they liked, just sort of celebrating right. him as a songwriter. You know, one website did a list. They got sound bites from 80 different musicians, various musicians of different genres and um, a very diverse group, a lot of young people. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, different races, genders, etc. And yeah. reading everybody's experiences with these various songs, which obviously I knew all of the songs on the list, you know, I was a big Paul McCartney fan. I was familiar with them already and had thoughts about them already. But yeah, hearing other people's perspectives on them was so rewarding. It's great to to read what somebody else who is not me, who doesn't see from my own perspective, <laughs> who sees from their perspective, they're likely to get something else out of a song because there were, there are were a lot of young people on the list, yeah. a, a, a lot yeah. of like 30 and under, mm -hmm. um, and not so many Gen Xers actually. Well, because we're always the missing component. It's true. We're the silent generation, <laughs> right? And this is such a Gen X reference as well. I think I read somewhere that we're the Jan Brady of generations. <laughs> sure, oh, Jan. I love it. Yeah, that's, sure, Jan. That's so accurate. Exactly. Let me get my black wig to wear out. Um, but it's it's true. I mean, I... I am an advocate, I think, for the Gen Xers as much as I can be in my own small way, just because <laughs> we are 
whether in the Beatles community or just in general in popular culture, there seems to always be that skipping between baby boomers and millennials and mm. sort of like, hey, guys, you know, we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> the Gen Xers are still here. But yeah, I know which article you're talking about. I did comment on it. And um, I, I am fascinated with the different generational connections to the Beatles, which is why in the book, I didn't just want to place the, the history that I was crafting just within the 60s. You know, it was important to me to advocate for the fact that the Beatles remain such a powerful presence, musically, culturally, this kind of touchstone, you know, my niece, who's 20, she actually met Paul McCartney when she was five years old or something there's this like random encounter (laughs) Mm -hmm. she was a Beatles fan from the moment she was born pretty much because of my sister playing the Beatles all the time for her and she loved it Mm -hmm. and there's so many stories like that (laughs) so many stories about people from each generation after the baby boomers. So from my generation, the millennials, um, now Gen Z, I thought it was important to emphasize that this is a history that's ongoing and evolving. And like you said, Phoebe, we're seeing in social media platforms right now, especially the way that is playing out for these very young fans who are still, you know, teenagers and in their early 20s, like my niece, um, who are coming to the Beatles in their own way and expressing their adoration for the Beatles in their own way. And that's quite exciting. And experiencing them in completely different ways than than prior generations did. Yes. And I had a, a couple of thoughts when we were talking about living histories and you know interviewing people who were contemporaries of the Beatles or who knew them or who had some sort of interaction with them I would love to see somebody really tackle the effect that John Lennon's death had Mm. in how contemporary stories are told because Mm. from 1980 forward all Mm -hmm. of those stories are told in remembrance to John so that's right. That's definitely sure. got a skew things. And then after 1999, I think 2001, 2001, 2001. Yeah. I, I apologize. After 2001, they're all told in in remembrance to George. So I wonder how much yeah. that impacts people's mm. telling of their own history, their own memories, their own feelings towards these people. You know. And on the mm-hmm. flip side of that, I wonder. You know, when we're talking about younger fans and how they interact with the Beatles. Again, I think it's very different. People under 30, their impressions of Paul McCartney, for example, are way different than people, let's say, over 50 or whatever. Very, very different because yeah. they had, they've had they had a different relationship with him as a celebrity and as a person, you know, on the earth. And also, like, their impression of Yoko Ono. I mean, people mm-hmm. under a certain mm-hmm. age, they don't have mm-hmm. any bad interactions. You know what I mean by interactions? Like, they don't yeah. have any bad association with Yoko Ono because she's, right. they just haven't. She's been alive. 
she's never been a problem so they're Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like they're not Mm -hmm. predisposed to have a problem with her and a lot of this like john versus paul a lot of Mm -hmm. people are not bringing that into fandom into it now no and i think even with yoko i feel like there was a turning point even as early as sort of for my generation anyway in the sort of early to mid 80s where yeah. people like myself who were really invested in sort of post-punk music or punk music recognized Yoko's musical innovations and contributions as really embedded in that whole world of music whereas I think you know certainly there are baby boomers who became fans of punk who were punk you know in punk bands um yeah uh, but less so but less so yeah right so I felt like with Gen X because of the kind of music a lot of um teenagers for instance were listening to and of course it's not to say I mean there were tons of teenagers in the 80s who were listening to Bon Jovi and not you know Kate Bush or the B-52s but there there was a sizable portion of my generation who didn't have any issues with say Yoko's music let alone her as a figure in the Beatles story and because there was more acknowledgement of feminism as well and people like myself who even as a relatively young person was looking at the way Yoko was talked about and discussed where I thought that isn't right that does not sit well with me mm-hmm. <laughs> even before I was sort of more aware of say second wave feminism or even then later third wave feminism which was all ago when I was at university basically so yeah so you're absolutely right I think with each generation there's going to be a different response to these sort of key stories or key figures or key narratives that have been around and have developed over the decades some of those old battles like old school Beatle fandom gripes like just don't they just don't hit the same to younger people they're just like whatever I don't care about that Right. right yeah let's talk about something else <laughs> exactly just... exactly and they'll pick up stuff that older people hadn't even thought of you know that's the kind mm-hmm. of the whole point of it right <laughs> that's yeah. why we want it to keep changing as Rob Sheffield said the best books about the Beatles haven't been written yet yeah I do I do believe yeah. that I do believe that, mm-hmm. that they're just mm-hmm. gonna get better and better I think oh my so God, too. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think that's right. Maybe it is, you know, the critical distance that develops. Um, maybe it's just as I think you guys both intimated that idea that different generations will have different kinds of information about the world and therefore different perspectives and will want to focus on different aspects of the Beatles story just like for me yeah I at at my point in time I thought yeah I really want to focus on the women's stories because that's something I haven't seen yet and that's a book I would want to read and that's something that's of interest to me so Mm -hmm. um every generation of writers and researchers are going to have that sort of diverse view of what could be 
further discussed or further written about. Definitely. So, Christine, you know, you've, you've compiled all of this information. You've looked at so, so many primary sources. Can you give us a few specifics that have jumped out to you, specific differences that you tend to see between how male writers, scholars, commentators um, write about the Beatles versus female writers? Like what, what do women seem to bring to the table that men often don't? Mm, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's, it's more, as I was saying before, it's more around sort of the angles and the questions that are being mm. asked. And mm -hmm. I think maybe because so much that's been written already has been written by male writers that if women are writing in response or in reaction to what's already out there, then, you know, for instance, for me, it was very much about countering certain um, narratives that I'd seen a lot of. And I thought, is there, is there more to them? Is there mm -hmm. something that hasn't been asked? Um, yeah. There so I think, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, again, that's going to vary person to person, not even so much necessarily based on gender, but as I said before, because uh, the wealth of material that's been produced so far has been mostly by male authors, for instance, um, there could be things, you know, that are being picked up by women looking at that saying, well, what about this? Or why are women being talked about just in these particular ways? Or why aren't we asking about the whole scope of fans' experiences? Why is it this kind of narrow scope? Why are we just looking at the 1960s? You know, can't we look at a longer history of mm -hmm. the Beatles' impact? So I don't know that there are any, again, I would say they're not really like essential differences I think mm -hmm. um, because the content that's been produced has been mainly by male authors, that's going to spur maybe some women to look at that material in a particular way and want to ask different kinds of questions, go down different avenues of inquiry and so on. So do you have like some examples of, of patterns and trends of the, the kind of different questions? And avenues that women tend to gravitate toward? I can I mean, tell you my so impression, I've... anecdotally. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to hear yours, Phoebe, what you think about that. I mean, I would say for my experience as a Beatles fan since mm -hmm. I was a little girl and a consumer of books and podcasts and documentaries and whatnot, is that I think men will often say that women focus too much on feelings and relationships. And mm. I actually, I think men don't mm -hmm. focus enough on feelings mm. and relationships. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. to be honest, like men are also driven by emotions and feelings and relationships. And yes, to ignore them because it's either not considered masculine or because it makes you uncomfortable or because you don't have any mm -hmm. good insights doesn't fix the problem it doesn't mean 
that it's something that doesn't need to be asked. It just means that you're not really looking as deeply as you should into why people are behaving the way that they are. And, Mm -hmm. and also they're artists. That's the other thing that I find Mm -hmm. bizarre is writing about the Beatles as if it's like, you know, Hitler and Churchill or something, something like that. (laughs) And I, I get that they're sort of trained to do that. And I also get that Mm. they're, you know, they're sort of scared off of sounding too touchy feely and stuff like that. So sure. I'm, I'm sure. psychologizing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely true. I was going to say that actually the whole professionalization of anything, the idea of being professional, it's that idea of like taking out anything that smacks of any sort of emotion or vulnerability, you know, to yeah. be professional is to have this front right? Yes. Um, and and who decided that that's the way to be professional? <laughs> Which well, group of people decided that that was the right way exactly. to be professional? And also, so. it's, it's a little absurd when you're talking about art. You're talking about mm-hmm. artists making art. So, it, right. and what are they making their art about? Love? 90% of, you know, like their feelings and emotions. That's what they're writing about. So, right, right. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a hard case to make if you just do the box scores right you'll get the right answer and that's it it's not gonna work that way again i do understand that men are trained that way and that they Mm -hmm. have gotten their hands slapped their entire lives for veering into you know so-called female areas like Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. armchair psychology and reflection on feelings and stuff like that this is a thing that i've never seen in female fandom being a long time beetle nerd for decades of my life Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with other female fans it's like mixtapes and songs and talking about the music but then also talking about the relationships and the personalities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that type of stuff the one thing we have never done is rank like put everything <laughs> in a ranked hierarchy that mm, i've yeah. never experienced that at all like definitely sort things into like oh well these are my my favorites and they all go on this mixtape or that type of thing making lists sure but not in terms of like ranking stuff and then just like the obsession yeah. with hierarchy dominance like band politics and stuff like that yes Again, more yeah. like it's a right. Churchill yeah. Hitler thing <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely I totally hear what you're saying and actually thinking through this question a bit more in terms of examples it was actually really Candy Leonard who was the first to say, well, what about the fans, you know, to really focus a book just on the fans in in that really sort of sociological um, study. So that that is something I think that uh, women writers, women academics have been maybe a little bit more engaged with in terms of looking at audience studies, you know, looking at fan studies. And there certainly are a lot of um, male academics who do fan studies, so I'm not saying they don't exist. But in uh, the Beatles community, if I'm thinking of one book that's come out by a woman author and how it's different, I think Candy really wanted to give voice to all as many fans, American fans anyway, as she could, and show the importance, again, of that relationship between the fans and the band. 
it seems like fan the word fan gets attached to women way more readily than it does to men right like even right. though all of the men that host podcasts and you know do youtubes and what they're all fans but oh absolutely yeah I, I feel like men generally aren't referred to as fans like to their face mm -hmm. like, I feel like that's kind of a disrespectful way to refer to a man from their point of view well, some of the literature that I did come across, and I cite some of it in the book as well, is this stereotype of the fan that is overly emotional to the point of quote unquote hysteria, right? That sort of fan is coded as female. And it is, there is this sort of uh, derogatory connotation, right? Whereas men who are fans are seen as connoisseurs. Yes. Uh, Yes. aficionados yes <laughs> yes all these you know they are in the know they are hip and they're aware of everything about this topic it's intellectual engagement not any sort of emotional connection and that is certainly not true yeah. right because yeah. yeah that's a stereotype but there's there's actually quite a bit of writing about that, both in popular music studies, looking at music fans um, specifically, but then also just in general. And I made sure to point that out, I think, in the introduction of my book. And then I go back to it at some point, I think, in the chapter talking about where women are intellectually engaging, whether as a full-time job or as, you know, yeah. un unpaid labor. So yeah, that exactly is what you're talking about in the comment you just made, Phoebe, that idea that men don't want to be called fans, even though they are, certainly because of those sorts of stereotypes and connotations. Yeah. I mean, I think most of them would be comfortable with the term fan under the right conditions. Like, I don't, sure. I don't think it's like a yeah. slur. Yeah, but no, it has no, to no. be said with respect and with consent. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. women, you can just throw that term on a woman at any time. And also, mm -hmm. like you were saying, you, you actually wrote in your book, and I made a note of it, you said that male fans' intense allegiance to specific bands and performers, they're deemed devoted or loyal, and it's not seen as problematic. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. women's devotion is often either criticized or ridiculed. And I wonder yeah. if there's like also going back to the hysteria thing. I wonder if mm -hmm. there's a almost like a fear on men's part of mm -hmm. women's like devotion mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, which which again so. <laughs> is is crazy. You know, I mean, considering like both of the Beatles who were attacked by fans were attacked by men, one of whom was murdered by mm -hmm. a male fan. But there's something right. scary about about female fandom. Like, yeah, it definitely is always coded as more suspect and yes. worrisome, bothersome. Yes, yes. And, you know, honestly, in all the interactions I've ever had with men who are deeply involved in Beatles culture, you know, in whatever capacity, it's always been totally friendly and I haven't had any sort of issues with being taken seriously or what have you, except in those random things in social media. But generally speaking, over the years, um, I've never 
encountered that full on. And I hope I never do. But the (laughs) fact is, some of that definitely does go on. And it's a spillover from a lot of things that feminist writers have written about for a long time in terms of historically women being coded as, you know, overly emotional, not rational, not logical. Men are the ones in society who are seen as the logical ones, the rational ones, the ones who are taking care of business, you know? So a lot of that, unfortunately, still permeates in all these different little ways. One of the ways is around, you know, music fandom, for sure. For example, you know, Allison's story about how she met a guy on a plane who, when she mentioned she was studying the Beatles, immediately told her that he knew more about them than she did. Yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating to hear things like that. Um, like I said, I know they go on, and that was uh, part of the impetus of writing the book too, was to pull women out of Beatles history, out of that sort of caricature and stereotype and show sort of real human beings experiencing the Beatles in various ways. Yeah. There is that sort of stereotype of the male fan who's like, oh, you like the Beatles? Name 10 <laughs> of their, right, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, which songs didn't have a bass line on it? Hit you with some trivia, that's going to prove something. Right, for sure. And I think there was one woman I interviewed who was talking about being a teenager at parties where her group of friends, boys and girls, you know, would be talking about music and that she often knew more about the Beatles than some of the guys who were there. And it sort of blew these guys away. Like, wow, she, she really knows. She really knows her stuff. She can read books. <laughs> There's that stereotype of oh, girls just like the Beatles because the Beatles are cute. Obviously, going back to Beatlemania, that's the only reason these these girls could be that into this band is because they're good looking to them. Yeah, and the sort of converse of that is, well, and if they're attracted to them, then that must be the only thing they value about them. It's not because of their talent or their activism or their intelligence or their humor. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And so they yeah. project that onto women more where it's like, no, we, yes. can, we can be so aroused that we scream at them at a concert. And and that can be because, not just of their appearance, but because of all of those other things. Exactly. Because I think the attractiveness of the Beatles is really the whole package of each one of them. Exactly. You know, exactly. That they're charismatic, they're hugely talented creating this amazing music that you don't want to stop listening to that creates excitement uh-huh. in your whole body yeah right right <laughs> you know um is stimulating you know they're they're creating this stimulating exciting atmosphere they seem really funny they seem smart each of them would be people you'd want to Yes. Get to know as friends to meet yes. at a party and chat with them. Yes. And they're superstars. Yeah. So I think to say that women who are attracted to men only like the Beatles because of what they look like is just lazy thinking. It's lazy yes, thinking. It is. It's yes. not, it's not it based pretend- on reality. 
Yeah. And yeah. it potentially says a lot more about yourself than it does about who you're talking about. Well, and it also implies that men are definitely not influenced by somebody's, you know, aesthetic beauty or, or like somebody's <laughs> joie de vivre or, you know, whatever it is that makes right. the Beatles attractive, which is insane. That's so stupid. Like, obviously, people like attractive people. That's It yes. has nothing to do with your sexuality or anything. It's like, so, of course, right. men like that the Beatles are sexy and, and attractive. And it's, like you said, it's the whole package. There's that, you know, that old, old saying, which is not entirely accurate is it that the initial wave of Beatles fans it was the male fans who wanted to be the Beatles and have all that attention and adulation and be superstars right and the women wanted to be with them you know and right 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 as <laughs> as I talk about in the book well some of these women wanted want to... to be like the Beatles whether it was being in a really cool group of friends at school, you know, where you all had sort of these sparky personalities and were witty and smart <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and you know, did everything together and it seemed so fun. <laughs> or if they wanted to play in bands, there were a lot of ways that young women who saw the Beatles thought, yeah, I want that too. That seems like a really fun way to be. That yes. seems like a fun way to live. That's something that is central to the argument I make in the book about why the Beatles became such role models for young women in the 60s is because there weren't a ton of role models of young women who were doing the kinds of things yeah. the Beatles were doing. You know, we can point to female singers of that time who obviously were adored by female fans as well. But the kind of agency the Beatles had on yes. such a large scale and the fun the actual fun that yeah. they demonstrated being who they were doing something that they loved that was hugely attractive to young women at that time and I do think that's what sparked young women's interests into living their lives in a new and different kind of way you know when they thought about what their adult life might look like I mm -hmm. totally agree. I think that was one of the most successful and interesting parts of your book because I've never seen anybody articulate that. But again, as a woman and as a Beatles fan, it's so sort of natural and ingrained and I just kind of take it for granted. And I think mm -hmm. probably a lot of female friends just kind of take it for granted that like, yeah, we wanted to be the Beatles. I mean, that's what I remember when I was 13. I didn't want to, I identified with the Beatles, not mm -hmm. yes. the girlfriends and their wives and the people around. Yes. And, you know, mm -hmm. I wanted to be mm -hmm. them. Same as any boy, you know, like I mm -hmm. identified with the protagonist of the story. Right, and, right. The heroes in the center of the tale, right? The yes. heroes on the sort of Absolutely. hero's journey. Yeah. I I'm just so glad that you made that come alive in your book because it's kind of a bummer to think about but I guess that's not something that men assume is part of the female experience 
Yeah. If that's the case, it is something that needs to be put in writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad that that resonated with you, that you thought that was a good and true argument to make about the female fan experience. And you're right. I think if you're a girl growing up loving the Beatles, it seems like, yeah, of course, why hasn't somebody said that already? You know, that's part of yes. our, our experience. And it is strange and a bit of a bummer that it hasn't been <laughs> something that's been written about previously. And again, I'm grateful I was in a position where I could do that and really think deeply about how it's not just my experience, right? But realizing from all the interviews I did and all the stuff I was looking at, that it definitely is something integral to the women's history of the Beatles and that spans multiple generations. Yeah, it, it's really amazing. You did an excellent job with it. And there is a skill in, you know, being able to, put that in a way that's accessible and digestible to everybody, including, you know, the percentage of your readership where that might not have occurred to them. And that's really, yeah. it's not a small thing. That's a big thing. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I've always wanted all my writing, even though it has been in the academic space, I've always wanted it to be accessible. That's always yeah. been a goal because as somebody obviously who's gone through the whole program of degrees from undergraduate to PhD, you come across academic writing that seems very remote, very distant. Yeah. It's not so readable. Oftentimes there are super important points that are being made, but the writing style is such that it just takes a whole lot longer to grab yeah. onto those yeah. ideas. <laughs> prohibitive it's, yeah <laughs> yeah and I just thought the point of having all this education and learning about things is to be able to synthesize the information and relay it in a whole new way to your audience in a way that doesn't require so much hard work you know that yes. it should be something that is like wow I've never thought about that in this way and this bit of writing has opened my eyes to something new I've worked hard to do that because it actually is not necessarily the way you're taught to write as an academic like yeah. anyone who does a lot of writing I guess you develop and find your voice and I'm I'm super glad that that's how you're reading it that you can see it as making strong arguments but it's relatable and accessible yeah that's the best compliment so thank you you're welcome yeah I mean you did a, a great job yeah, it, and I think the reception that it's got I think you know proves that but it's it's always scary I find, <laughs> I find <laughs> imagine you know yes. going back to the beginning of our conversation like of course, I totally enjoyed this project. One of the most wonderful things about it was all the, the women that I met and interviewed. That was amazing that they were willing to share their stories with me and having that connection with them as a fellow fan, as well as being a researcher. I mean, I was really touched by 
some of those experiences. You know, so it was a totally joyful project, but I think anyone who's producing something new, there is that level. I think if you're really invested in it, especially, you know, there is that aspect of feeling quite vulnerable and worried that it will not be received the way that you hoped it would be. Right. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. There's going to be hopefully more people who are supportive and think, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'm so glad Christine wrote that book, you know, mm -hmm. um, but of course, you do have to expect there are going to be some people who think like this is rubbish. You know, why, why did, why did this person think they should write this? And I think talking about, you know, all that stuff previously about who's the expert, who has ownership of these stories, and sort of the gendered dynamic of that, I think, you know, I'm not always the most courageous or bravest person in the room. Uh, but I was willing to take a risk and give myself permission to be a woman who was going to be confident enough to do something like this. Because I think one of the interesting things that comes out of these studies about leadership and expertise and all of that is that I think a lot of times women don't recognize their own competence. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And I think and this could be in any profession, right, or doing any sort of project, that women don't sort of ever want to be put in that position of fake it till you make it. Whereas I think men are okay with that. Oh, and, sure. and men are really, I think, oftentimes <laughs> uh, quite confident, even if they're not super competent, actually, you know? Oh, yeah. So, it's That's the thing that we all are jealous of. Right. So, I mean, it's not like I didn't have the qualifications or the competency to do something like this. I, I've written a book before. I have a PhD. I've done big projects. I've interviewed people before. But, you know, I just think in the Beatles world and also the whole host of professions, um, there's that hesitancy and maybe that, you know, I don't know, I can't speak for other women's experiences with thinking about doing a project like this. I can only speak for my own, but I do think there are studies out there that bear this out that um, women are less likely to promote themselves as being an expert. And I think that's why I very consciously in my Twitter profile put Beatles expert. I do that on purpose because I think women are reluctant to do that. And I have had a few like snipey or, you know, mm. not so friendly comments come up once in a while, like, well, what makes you a Beatles expert? Hmm? <laughs> and I just think, you know, I don't need to explain this. There should be more women out there who are embracing their, their knowledge and expertise and no woman should be afraid to say that she's an expert if she is indeed, you know, qualified to say that. So, yeah, um, yeah I, that's I, just something I've been thinking about a lot, actually. And so I'm glad we had this sort of focus for our discussion, because I just really would like to see more women embrace that, that having that agency of being knowledgeable about something. And you guys are fantastic doing that. You really do demonstrate your knowledge and embrace what you know about the Beatles. And that's why your podcast is so fantastic. Oh, thank oh. you so much. Thank you. 
yeah i was just gonna say that um you know we had a similar experience uh at the launching of this podcast you know at some point you just have to decide you know what i think i have something to offer and so i'm going to go ahead and put it out there i mean there are a million reasons not to do it you kind of know up front you're gonna get some nasty comments you're mm -hmm. gonna unfortunately you're gonna, yeah. yeah you just are you're gonna get some die bitch you know whatever if you are saying what you think you're gonna just piss some people off because fans are very opinionated we're very opinionated and then there's also just like well i don't like the way my voice sounds and you know like all that stuff that you just kind of have to get over <laughs> right. and just decide no i'm just gonna put it out there that's kind of with everything songwriting playing music whatever the biggest hurdle is deciding that you can do it yeah that's the big difference between if something gets done or not to just say, yes. yep, I'm going to do this, even if yes. it feels a little scary or whatever. Yeah. I love having interactive conversations with people about the Beatles because I just feel like nothing really replaces <laughs> live conversation in terms of mm -hmm. thinking through your ideas. Like every time I have an idea that I come to the table with, and talk to Daphne about it always gets better when we talk it out and we bounce mm. things off each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's just imagine. yeah there's just no replacing that real back and forth yeah the dialogue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and as I said at the beginning you know I I really I'm quite an extrovert really and I do interact with people all the time like my students and I'm not afraid of sort of public facing stuff yeah. but I, I so love writing because it's almost like I'm a different person in a way. I just, mm. there's a different oh, way sure. that I'm communicating and expressing myself that I really enjoy. And that must be true of anyone who does a lot of writing. You know, it's just, a, you're channeling something different about yourself into that sort of communication. So, yeah. Yeah. Where can our listeners find you, Christine? And oh, do you have yeah. any projects? Are there projects brewing? <laughs> Actually, there's a little bit of a project brewing here in Australia, but it's still early days. Oh, um, but, so I really don't have too much to say about that yet. But okay. um, hopefully, something exciting for 2024. Um, and I'm just working on sort of shorter academic articles right now, one of which is about the Beatles, but the others are about other sort of youth culture, popular music related things. Oh, and I should say there's a really exciting collection coming out next year about the history of record stores, where Ooh. I'm one of four editors who's worked on that. And uh, in terms of where to find me, I'm still on Twitter at Feldman Barrett. And uh, that's really the best point of contact. You can also find me through my university website. I mean, if you Google me and want to email me, you can. But Twitter is usually like the very best place to find me at the moment. Great. Excellent. It's been so fun. It's been so great talking with you guys. Yeah, thank you so much. No, it's been really good. And it's been really nice to just have a real conversation with you. 
yeah, um, likewise, about yeah. all of this. And I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. It makes me so happy to hear that. Yeah, it's really good. Very readable. So congrats on that. Yes, oh, I'm so you. glad it's getting the the props that it deserves. Yeah, oh, in the, thanks, in the fandom itself. It's fantastic. Thank you, Daphne. Uh -oh. That's Yikes. my dog. Sorry. All Thanks right. a lot for coming on. Oh, yes. thank you. It's been a pleasure. Daphne's about to get eaten by a wild dog. Is <laughs> yeah, someone's walking by in the hall. Oh my for heaven's sake. Oh, it was just such a thrill and so fun there. talking with you guys. It's you. it's just lovely to talk with other women who are so knowledgeable and invested in all things Beatles. So yeah, it's been a total pleasure. Mm -hmm.